0: The second part um, will be actually talking to Steve Reed, uh, one of the lead vaccine researchers in the world who's working on one of the four solutions in the Western Hemisphere to solve coronavirus. I'm just going to reintroduce the two of you. Uh, Steve, Chris is a big fan of yours, following you from the background and in your innovation. And I know you guys have talked before. Uh, But today's episode is going to be about the coronavirus. And Steve, um, according to um, at least our good friend in common, Frank Prendergast, you've got to be probably the guy who's most likely to solve um, the issue through a new vaccine. So I thought you might just start to share a little bit about coronavirus in general and um, take us through some of the other different drugs. And I I know you don't have that much time because you're working on a bunch of things at once. Mm -hmm. But... uh, do you mind just sharing more in more specific details what uh, coronavirus is?
1: Sure. Um, well, I think we know uh, from the news this is a virus related to others that we've been exposed to for many years, the cold, for example. It's a big family of viruses. But uh, we are just beginning to find out how diverse the family is and how animal varieties of this can be much more. Lethal to humans than the common cold. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting and very disturbing is the mortality rate of being higher than seasonal influenza. Uh, that's at least one percent. The case fatality rate uh, in some cases uh, up to five percent, much higher than even the uh, pandemic influenza of around one percent or two. And it's transmitted very effectively. Uh, This is very disturbing. Um, The rate at which one individual can infect others uh, means that it's not transmitted uh, just through sneezing or contact, but maybe through a variety of methods. Or it just takes very few viruses to infect someone. I'm really concerned as a global health person about what's going to happen when if and when this spreads to lower and middle-income countries. Like Ebola, um, the case fatality rate is relatively low, even though, as I mentioned, it's higher than we'd like it to be, obviously, but it's relatively low when people receive adequate medical care. Um, This is very true in Ebola, for example. If if you have good hospitalization, rehydration, et cetera, uh, survival rate is relatively high. But in countries where this is not going to happen, uh, if COVID nineteen gets into these populations, it could be devastating.
2: Can you share are there? Um, I guess the uh, SARS virus was a type of coronavirus, and um, I don't know if you have any insight or can share any into the similarities and or differences um, between these two strains.
1: They're in the same grouping, as you say, viruses are grouped to different categories, uh, often appearances, the way that their coat is organized. And so, yes, for that reason, they're together. But uh, as I mentioned before, we haven't seen a virus with this kind of virulence. Uh, so compared to SARS much more rapidly spread and a higher case fatality rate. Um, I don't know the details of the sequence differences because we don't know enough about the different sequences of uh, these viruses yet. I will have a conference call with Korea in about an hour from now, where they talk about new data they're getting from Asian isolates. Uh, but there are many differences in,
2: in, the, in the virus makeup. One of the, um, well, somewhat mitigating factors with SARS was that um, it uh, seemed to lose or diminish in virulence um, in high temperature and high humidity, and um, we could see that in some of the countries that, uh, like Thailand or Malaysia, that had that sort of uh, tropical environment, that the the uh, rate of infection um, was less than in colder climates. And I don't, again, not knowing the similarities and/or differences between this uh, that coronavirus and this rendition. Sure. If those were, those might be any, any way similar, but thank but, you. Yeah, that's possible. I was in the Philippines when the
1: SARS, in the middle of the SARS outbreak. And I remember exactly what you're talking about. People were screened, but, um, it wasn't nearly as serious, uh, there. Now it remains to be seen what's going to happen when in this particular situation, when, uh, individuals in warmer climates are, are exposed.
0: Steve, I, I know you were saying, you just started to tell me before we started that um, your wife is a nurse at Evergreen Hospital, ground zero for coronavirus and the first um, couple of deaths. You know, is there anything else you're learning as a result of that as well?
1: Well, I don't want to get her quarantined. Now, she's, <laughs> she works <with> <laughs> <laughs> I a clinic associated with the hospital. Um, yeah, there's been two more deaths today, today if you follow this. Um, I'm in the hospital, but from my, you know, from a patient, as I understand it, from a nursing home associated with this. But um, yes, I just emphasize what I said initially, the spread, the the rate at which this can spread and progress. People without symptoms can spread it. So we don't know, uh, we don't have a good test. The CDC tried to come in early with the test. It wasn't quite what was needed. So uh, there's been a learning process here. I understand new tests are now being shipped um, based on different sequences these are relatively cumbersome tests. They're not rapid tests. They can't be used in a point of care, as we say. They have to be done in a central lab or, or a, or a health, and health care environment. Uh, so what we have now are tests that are based on genetic amplification as opposed to looking for antibodies. Now, I just talked to my wife about have trying to get some serum from individuals that may be exposed so that we can help run these lab tests because they're cumbersome. And uh, that's what we're going to start doing tonight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, can you take me through in shorter order? I understand that vaccine development is not <laughs> for the faint of heart and not for guys who haven't been studying it for decades like you. Um, can you take us through what it actually takes to come up with a vaccine for coronavirus and give it to us at a level that we can digest as non-scientists?
1: Yeah, there's about three different ways. The third being the uh, latest and perhaps most promising and and, and certainly fastest if it works. The first way is to be able to grow the virus in large quantities and then to inactivate it. This is what we do most commonly with influenza. Uh, uh, Influenza, mostly is grown in eggs today, very primitive technology developed 70 years ago. Uh, The egg provides a very rich environment, so once the new influenza strains are identified, they could be grown in eggs and then uh, semi-purified from the uh, egg itself, then formalin-fixed and inactivated and injected. Um, The next level of advancement in that particular type of vaccine would be growing it in cell culture as opposed to eggs. And cell culture, you can imagine, requires large factories, a lot of sterile environments, and uh, it's cumbersome and expensive.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So that's slow, uh, but it's been our go-to for several decades. The next generation of vaccines is, uh, is typified by the new shingles vaccine, you've heard about is every protein that's synthetically made in bacteria. And that requires identifying the protein that can give you a protective response. That's not always easy, usually takes years. And then putting that protein into a production system, whether it's cell culture or E. coli, which is a bacteria. Uh, Again, requires large factories and years of uh, development time. And the third and most promising new approach is through nucleic acids or genes. The first attempt to make vaccines using genes instead of the whole organism or protein uh, has been with DNA. Uh, That didn't work out too well. It's been studied for 20 years or more. Now people are excited about RNA, which is the intermediate step between DNA and protein. So once we have the gene sequence, If you can make an RNA molecule that actually induces an immune response, you can theoretically have a vaccine ready to uh, go into humans within a matter of weeks as opposed to months or years. And that's what's in the news today around Moderna, this company in Cambridge, Massachusetts, that is one of the pioneers of RNA technology. Technology is going to, I predict, revolutionized vaccine production. It could not have come along at a better time. So, yeah, so I think um, there are four companies, well, I, I should say four major ones that working on RNA vaccines, two in uh, Europe and two in this country. Uh, uh, we're one of them. Uh, we're a very small startup company, but the RNA vaccine technology is what we're focused on. I'll give you an example how fast you can transform a s- sequence into a product. Um, When the Chinese scientists released the sequence on the internet, it was a Thursday over here in the U.S. And by Friday the following week, we had a vaccine ready to go into animals. It went into animals that following week, so within two weeks. uh, And a response was detected within three weeks. Um, So the real advantage here is that, of course, it can be done rapidly. Therefore, if you miss it, like we often do with the flu vaccine, sometimes you'll read, oh, this year's vaccine isn't very effective. Well, you have, to, you have time to respond to that information by making a new variety. In addition to the rapidity, RNA turns out to be a quite a potent um, way to stimulate an immune response. And why is that? It's because the purpose of RNA is to make protein when you don't have to make that protein outside of the body in a cell culture or in a bacteria, as I just mentioned, you can make it with RNA inside the body. So your own cells produce it, and you're bypassing all that manufacturing technology and expense by turning your own body into a factory.
0: Steve, I'm curious. I'm curious if you can start to break down. Um you know, the other solutions on the market, Uh, obviously you're one of the lead vaccine researchers and developers in the world. Can you share a little bit about what you think about Moderna, Gilead and the two companies in Europe?
1: Yeah, so Moderna and CureVac uh, and BioNTech, those are RNA companies focused on vaccines, similar to what we do here. Uh, I really don't know if CureVac and BioNTech are focusing on uh, this, but I'd be surprised if they were not uh, Iliad, Neil, that's the drug company and they fo- have focused on antivirals, um, as opposed to a vaccine to prevent, these are drugs to treat. And I'm sad to say that we have a dearth of antivirals. You know, we have certain drugs like cyclovir and probably the most successful success story, the biggest success story of antivirals is HIV. When these, um, uh drugs came along uh, la- the last couple of decades and were smashingly successful in inhibiting HIV from uh, replicating and keeping people in remission, uh, even though they're not completely cured in most cases. Now, the kind of drugs that work for HIV, although they're being tested for coronavirus, we really don't know if they're going to work or not. At least I don't know. I don't think it is known. There are different viruses altogether. There haven't been, there hasn't been as much emphasis put into antivirals with the exception of HIV, things like shingles, things like hepatitis B. and So it's not like you're out buying a bunch of Gilead stock tonight. Well, I wouldn't mind. I think they have a good shot at it. And the reason is, in addition to the traditional drugs, Gilead uh, and our company HDT Bio. Uh, we're focusing on another category of antivirals, which are called uh, innate response modifiers. These are these are antivirals that activate by stimulating the immune system to inhibit the virus, and they're largely pathogen agnostic. Your immune system doesn't really care what the virus looks like, as long as you stimulate it the right way, you can inhibit a variety a variety of viruses. This is very new, very uh, early stage technology, but Gilead is in there. We're in there. And I think it could be a good solution to work, perhaps not by themselves, but together with antivirals um,
0: that are of the more traditional drug type. Are, are you bearish on any of the solutions that are coming out from any of the other drug companies? Well,
1: let's wait and see, I, I think Even in this situation, if you have a 10% or 15% efficacy, you've got something. I think Gilead's certainly got a good chance of uh, making a great contribution. There are a couple others. The the innate response modifiers, those are being looked at by uh, Pfizer among others. I think these is a great approach. We don't know yet quite how to deliver them, but we're learning, so I am bearish. Of course, I have to be a optimistic person in this business. Bullish then, so you're I'm bullish, bullish then. I'm sorry. Not bear. Yeah, <laughs> it got me distracted. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Why? Why are you? Um, you know, obviously I've spent a lot of time with you and getting to know you and uh-huh. getting to know about your development capabilities and you know, you have what like two hundred million dollars in grants to your name, so clearly you understand how to develop really interesting things. Um, the the thing I'm curious about is why do you why are you so bullish on your methodology? Of-
1: yeah, in the vaccine realm, I'm bullish because we've focused on delivery systems and uh, mm. RNA technology has been around for a few years. You may remember back in the 90s, uh, RNA, uh, RNA inhibition as a, they called it sRNA or, or silencing RNA as a way to turn down genes mm. and turn off protein expression. And it didn't really go very far because RNA is a very unstable molecule. And so, over the last decade, we and others have focused on making nanoparticles that can stabilize the RNA and deliver it effectively. So that's a revolution, and that's I think what's held the field back. So that's pretty new; um, it hasn't been around very long. I think it's going to make RNA uh, live up to its potential.
0: What, what? So, what do you what do you tell guys like uh, Chris who are investing in the public markets? You know, reading all these reports every day about how you know, different companies are working on different things. You know, how how is uh, the layman scientist? I mean, it, Chris is not a scientist at all. Um, he's a financial advisor How's, and, and an investor. How is he supposed to make better decisions in terms of uh, what he's reading about the next pharma company doing something?
1: Well, Neil, that's a loaded question. If I uh, knew that answer, then I would be uh, making money myself. No, I, 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 know, I certainly don't want to be giving people advice. Uh, I mean, the the market reacts to to all kinds of news that may or may not be relevant. But I think uh, you know companies with a track record of delivering uh, in these fields, as opposed to just maybe any startup that happens to say they're working on the new coronavirus, which may be gone in six months, uh, are, are the ones to invest in. I think, look. Traditionally, pharma companies that invest in R&D and have a track record of success are the ones most likely to be good investments.
0: I'm curious about the FDA. Typically, to get a therapy approved, uh, to get a vaccine approved is not a quick thing. Do you think that they're going to change the rules for uh, coronavirus now that it's a pandemic? And are they going to make it so potentially, if you guys have invented the cure at Onk, that uh, you're gonna be able to get to distribution sooner?
1: So that's a great question. And in fact, um, we've been there before uh, with influenza. Influenza is uh, something that comes up every year. It's quite serious. Uh, And because vaccines have to be produced almost in real time, then the FDA has instituted what they call strain change exemption Normally, when you make a vaccine, you have to produce it. You have to go through tox studies, toxicology studies, of course, human clinical trials, et cetera, uh, because it's new. What the FDA has allowed manufacturers to do for influenza, influenza is to fast track release of a product if they use the same manufacturing technique that they use year after year. So that's called the strain change exemption. They can just change the strain and make the Hmm. vaccine and you don't have to go through all these clinical trials. You release a product based on known manufacturing methodologies. So this, I predict, will be a huge advantage of an RNA platform, which is basically a platform that allows you to construct an artificial virus, i.e. just use the nucleic acid information of that virus and put it in an artificial coat If you establish a manufacturing method to do this and all you do every year is to change the strain or change the virus, the FDA is likely to uh, facilitate production. Uh, Moderna is a good example of that. They've had clinical studies already with their vaccine candidates using a manufacturing method. That is most likely the same one they'll use for this. So, I predict that the FDA will uh, fast track their uh, going into clinical trials, not necessarily approve a product, but approve of clinical studies.
0: Do you do you think it will happen with yours too? I mean, I you, it sounds to me, based on a little bit of the research I've done, you have a high chance of having the highest efficacy rate with. Uh, what you've invented or what you're working on. Well, I think um, we've improved. Do you think that you'll get fast tracked? Yeah, I
1: think we've improved the methodology, but no, uh, I don't think we'll be fast tracked because, unlike Moderna, our platform is very new and hasn't been in people yet. So hmm. we're very anxious to get into our first clinical study and accelerate that study. It doesn't have to be a long one, it can be quite short, uh, two injections with a follow up, for example. Um, but we will not be able to bypass the early safety studies.
0: So, so your total trial could take what under six months then, or under three months. Let's say you had all the capital today. I know you're, you know, you just started a startup, but um, how long could it could it potentially take? Under
1: six months is possible, uh, depending on the uh, toxicology study. And those are pretty quick. Uh, that's one area where the FDA could help if we can. Accelerate toxicology studies, that's where you uh, test it in animals and make sure that it's safe. Uh, Based on all the other RNA vaccines that have been in animals and people, it'd be great if we could somehow figure out how to accelerate that toxicology or animal testing period and get into the clinic more rapidly. But yes, certainly within six months, we could be in clinical development.
0: Ready to distribute to humans when you say in clinical development. Well,
1: clinical development means testing in humans. Distribute your, your implying... They're implying uh, product approval, and, I guess. Uh, that would be, you know, more of a situation depending on emergency needs, for example. This is what I'm talking to Korea about this afternoon because they're very anxious to accelerate this in case things get worse and worse, and um, you know, without taking shortcuts, that would endanger healthy individuals. Uh, there are ways that you can uh, accelerate the uh, the development time
0: mm. when you say Korea who are you talking to are you talking to the, you know the government or are you talking to private companies both I know you're connected in lots of different places and you've done co-development with you you know half of major pharma in the world who is it this this time?
1: is this government this is a combination of academic and uh, the Korean CDC now, Korea has set up Mm -hmm. institutions very much like the US has. They have their own FDA, they have their own CDC.
0: So it's possible that what you're working on could even potentially be approved in Korea, even though it wouldn't be approved here.
1: We've done something similar with tuberculosis vaccines. Uh, While we were in clinical development in Africa, for example, uh, Korea accelerated clinical studies in their own
2: country. So we like to do these things in parallel where the need is greatest. No, I think it's fascinating, Steve. You um, really helped to open my mind up to all these possibilities and to what you're working on. It's pretty fascinating. Um, I'm I'm always um, impressed with Korea and um, just looking at the way that they've set up the testing, the drive-throughs, the uh, 10 minute uh, exams, um, I I do think a lot about this virus and uh, how many people who are carriers are asymptomatic, and how difficult it is to detect and really corral this. So um, I applaud your work. Thank you. Yeah, no,
1: I agree. Um, you, you're you're quite welcome. I I agree. Korea is a a great example of, as we know from manufacturing, getting things done and getting things done quickly and getting things done better than uh, many other. Um, countries can do they they respond in high quality uh ways and rapid ways to to situations i was supposed to go there back today the only reason i did not is because i didn't want to get quarantined on the way back um but if there is a reason or a need i will go ahead and and make a trip this week um Mm -hmm. so that's what one of the things i'll determine today but yeah Korea is just a good example of where we can get things done uh, quickly and where there's a problem. We like to work where the problem is greatest. And, of course, they're an entree into China because China actually accepts Korean-made biologics to put into their clinical studies.
0: Steve, I had had one last question. Obviously, uh, Washington, where we live, is ground zero. I traveled to Boston today very much because of conversations I've had with you. I'm at, I'm at the TED Med conference taking a break to record this podcast. Do you mind just, this? literally the last thing I'll ask you before I, I say thank you for coming to join us today. Um, do you mind just sharing with the audience what you shared with me that made it okay for me to travel? I said, hey, I called you up and I said, Steve, is it okay for me to travel? You're, you're the guy who First, I just wanted to make sure you weren't
1: sneezing or symptomatic in any way because people are always catching colds and of course this isn't the time to be traveling with the cold um but yeah i mean keeping why i always wipe down the surfaces of public spaces where i sit airplanes example of course i do that anyway it's just me i fly so much uh but hand wipes and uh and and and, you know trying to uh reduce the contact that you have with your hands for the surfaces washing them frequently uh it's very important i think it's at least is important, probably more so than masks.
0: And, and while uh, hand sanitizer was sold out in greater Seattle, um, it is abundantly available at the airport. Should you travel?
1: I'd just like to mm-hmm. say one more thing. Uh, today, um, Bill Gates had a nice, uh, editorial in the new England journal of medicine, which is one of the most respected, uh, medical journals in the world. So, uh, I think the audience might benefit from taking a look at his comments. Um, around coronavirus, COVID-19. It's the New England Journal of Medicine, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. N-E-J-M.
0: We will will be sure to put the link in the show notes.
1: Yes,
2: we will. Thank
1: you, Steve. Sure. Steve, thanks for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you for all your help and attention and interest.